Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill, and I can't believe it, but it's 2023, so Happy New Year. I'm also so excited for today's interview. If you listen to podcasts other than Professional Book Nerds, you might be familiar with my guest. Um, She certainly has a lot of fans of the Overdrive office, myself included. So Aubrey Gordon is the author of What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat and co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Maintenance Phase. You may also be familiar with her work when she wrote under the name Your Fat Friend. Her latest book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People, is out January 10th. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. What a treat to be here. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People? Absolutely. So uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago that you just mentioned, uh, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, that was sort of this combination of sort of um, memoir and research on the experiences of fat folks in the world, including my own. And uh, as I sort of, uh, as that book went out into the world, (laughs) um, I started to get more and more requests from people, particularly listeners of our podcast, but also just like readers writ large who were like, right, right, right. I get that you wrote this whole chapter and it weaves in stuff about the BMI or whatever, but like, can you give me like five to 10 pages that I can hand to my uncle who won't shut up about the BMI? Yeah. (laughs) Can you give me three to five pages on, uh, you know, Uh, where the idea of sort of the obesity epidemic, quote unquote, came from. You know, can you give me just a little like bite-sized text version of like why these really foundational ideas that we have about fatness and fat people are either flat out wrong or are missing really critical like nuance and other sort of elements that help sort of flesh out the picture. Um, So this book is designed as uh, 20 short little chapters tackling some of the most sort of pervasive and pernicious myths about fatness and fat people. I like that you described it as sort of bite size because that's Mm. what it, it feels like. It was very like it's they're They're not long chapters, but they're super informative. And I am someone who, you know, I would be considered a mid fat and I've Mm. been kind of in the, this space of body liberation and anti-diet culture for years. Mm. And even I had takeaways from this book, which I don't think it surprised me, but it made me think about a lot of things that Mm. I hadn't necessarily considered. Um, So I really think this is a book that like anyone can benefit from reading. Oh, I appreciate that. I'm curious about like what, uh, were yeah. there things that landed for you differently reading this book or things that you surprised you or anything like that that sort of jumped out at you? Yes, it was the, um, you talk about why you use the phrase anti-fat versus fat phobia. Mm. And that in particular, because I've always used the phrase fat phobia, but yeah. you explain how it's not a phobia. It's not yeah. a fear of fat people. It's anti-fat sentiment. And that was like a light bulb switch for me. Um, that definitely changed how I sort of think about all of these conversations. It really, that was a, a light bulb switch for me as well. I read a piece by Denari Monroe some years ago for Everyday Feminism. I think it was for Everyday Feminism. Um, that was essentially like, we need to stop calling oppressive attitudes phobias <laughs> because yeah. phobias are real things and people actually have phobias. That's like a mental condition that people are dealing with, right? And, uh, you know, the people who are most sort of dead set against fat people being out in the world aren't like afraid of us, right? right. Like necessarily. Yeah. Um, they 
you know, have a different set of social goals around like dealing with fatness and fat people. And usually that's, I don't want to look at you, which isn't the same thing as I'm afraid of you, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious, like when we talk about sort of dismantling diet culture or dealing with people who are like adamantly anti-fat, do you think there are ways to sort of safely initiate that conversation with them is it should we be doing that you know just sort of, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean like i think it, you know that's a fair question like should we be yeah. doing that? i mean I, so listen i think this is informed in part by who you are right mm. and how you present to that person if you are a fat person talking to a dead set anti-fat person yeah uh that question of like is it safe is a pretty salient one if you are a person who has an eating disorder and you're worried about a relapse that conversation is a valid you know like that is it safe question is a really important one right um there are a number of folks who need to be asking that particular question i think there's a question here about like when is it strategic Mm. to try and tackle anti-fatness because i think in some cases um well i'll say this Uh, I spent years and years uh, as a community organizer knocking on people's doors and being like, I'm a gay person. Do you think I should have anything? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And one of the scales that we would use to measure people's support was this sort of one to five scale. Ones were people who were all the way with us. They were in our corner no matter what. Fives were sort of the opposite. There are people who are dead set against us and threes are sort of undecided, movable, that kind of thing, right? To my mind, when you're dealing with a super anti-fat person, uh, I think there are times when it's worth following the guidance about what to do with fives. And what to do with Mm -hmm. fives is you move on and find a four, a three, or a two (laughs) to talk to, right? Yeah. But like, um, for example, if someone tells me that they're, uh, you know afraid that say a plus size mannequin in a nike store is glorifying obesity right that's the phrase that folks like to return to that to me tells me that that person doesn't necessarily have a concrete social concern that they're addressing they just didn't want to see a fat body right in that store right that's not someone who's winnable that's not someone who's open to a good faith conversation right People will kind of tell you if they're open to it. I think for folks who are like extremely anti-fat, the best thing you can do is set yourself some real strong boundaries about the kind of behavior you will and won't tolerate and move on to the next. For folks who are sort of confused or open or, you know, are willing to consider that they and people that they know and love might actually have been unintentionally um, replicating anti-fat ideas or perpetuating diet culture or whatever that looks like right Mm -hmm. there are lots of those folks in the world those are i think generally better places for me personally those are places i would rather spend my time right yeah is with the many people who are amenable to this conversation but not quite there yet versus folks who are sort of like you know the most dead set against seeing fat people or being around fat people right we can just let them go off and do their thing. Right. Right. Uh, do you think there are any sort of foot in the door signs people present that would indicate they're sort of a three or kind of on that cusp that they might be open to those conversations and tackling their anti-fat bias? Ooh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I would say Uh, I have had quite a bit of success with uh, people who will read media that sort of questions the effectiveness of different weight loss methods, right? Mm -hmm. And they're sort of like, well, it seems like nothing works, right? Like, if someone's in that place, then you're like, ah, we've got an opening. (laughs) You're right, right. (laughs) Nothing works. And even if it did, why are we so dead set on making other people look the way that we expect them to look? What's that telling us about sort of what we value and what we expect out of the people around us, right? Like, I think that kind of stuff, that sort of like, wait a minute, it seems like this conversation is changing. What's going on here has been a really fruitful place for me personally. I'm curious about for you, have you had any, you know, as someone who's sort of been in the space for a long time? Yeah. uh, Are there success stories that you've had where you're like, oh, people who I thought were less open are now a little more open or people who were 
kind of, you know, undecided or questioning their views on fatness and fat people have actually moved forward. Have you experienced any of that in your own life? I have, um, with my, with my family, um, uh, I had a lot of, when my mom was still alive, it was a constant, it was a whole thing. Um, mm. and she passed away a few years ago. And I think shortly after, um, she passed away, my dad, he subscribes to those, like, um, it's, it's like the skin, but not quite the skin, but they send like brief synopsis of books. Like you might be interested mm. in this. And it's like a very random selection of books, but he forwarded me a, one of these emails he got and it was for um oh god my brain is now mortifyingly forgetting oh, Sonia, <laughs> no it's Sonia renee taylor's um uh, book. here we go Good. Yes. Um, yes so he just like forwarded me this um like th- saying like oh, this feels like a book you'd be interested in and mm. i mean i'd already read it because of course i had but the fact that he sort of recognized that Sonia Renee Taylor is someone that I would be interested in mm-hmm. and the message of that book. And then my sister as well. Like I, I dieted for a very long time before quitting. Um, she mm. did as well. She's also sort of like stopped. She's, she has a five-year-old and a, a newborn and they've been very conscientious in how they talk about food um, mm. around their children because she doesn't, like we're both kind of breaking this cycle, so to speak about things, mm. but there were definitely times where long ago, um, we had a lot of, she and I had some friction related to my weight. And then mm. other times we went, um, on vacation together a few years ago and, and we were in a restaurant that was very narrow space between tables and chairs mm-hmm. and they led us to a booth and my sister was like is this okay asking me like mm-hmm. she wanted my buy-in that this table was going to be okay for me and it was fine but the fact that like she thought she was yeah. aware enough to ask that question yeah meant a lot to me yeah that's uh, that's such a good one when someone asks me where i want to sit Hey, where where do you think we should sit when we walk into a restaurant or a bar or whatever? That is like music to my ears because most people don't do it, right? Correct. It's like such a joy that someone is like, even just clocking, wait a minute, we're about to sit in this place and I don't know if it will fit you or if it will be comfortable, even if it does. Correct. Is like really helpful. I will also say, I think uh, your point about sort of breaking the cycle around diet culture is a thing that I think a lot of folks are considering now without necessarily thinking about fat politics as being attached to that in any way. Right. That right? I feel like I know a lot of people who are like, I'm not really dieting anymore. It doesn't really work. It seems like a racket. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but who aren't necessarily going, wait a minute, do I need to also revisit some of my beliefs around this thing? Like it feels good to let go of this idea that I need to lose weight or I need to diet or look different. Yeah. There might also be other things that I've learned in that process um, that I need to do a little unlearning around. And I find that those spaces are also really fruitful, fertile spaces for getting folks to sort of reconsider a bunch of things because they're already in a little bit of a worldview shift. Yeah. And if you go, right, right, right. So you're taking the first two steps. Let's go three, four, and five, right? Right, <laughs> um, yeah. That's like a, a really great opportunity in my own experience to like get some stuff in there, you know? Yeah, I I will say that I cannot take credit for this particular question about looking for opportunities. This came from um, the co-chairs of our women's ERG at Overdrive. <laughs> they, right knew, they knew I was interviewing you, and so they provided some questions. And I will say that, um, yes, our ERG is definitely a space, and Overdrive is a whole, thanks to the women's ERG, that has, like, the people in it are very much many of them trying to unlearn a lot Mm. of these things. And we have a lot of really good conversations around it because there are people like me and other folks who have been in this space a while and are open to be like, I, I will have coworkers sort of slack me 
about something related to this topic because I mm. they know I'm vocal about it. And yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm like yeah. that person. Yeah, I've like I've like given presentations about the difference between being positive about your body versus the mm. political social movement of body positivity like what it's supposed to be versus what it, yeah so like i yes i'm that person at work which i'm very happy to be but yeah bless you it, i love it like, i love it but like as i was i mean like i it was it was making me think as i was listening to you know the most recent maintenance phase podcast episode about mm-hmm. wellness um at work and being like yeah we've made some changes over the years at overdrive because like through some of those programs totally i don't need my boss checking in on like my bmi that's a thing i could do without in my life like yeah. that feels fair and reasonable <laughs> fair and reasonable fair and reasonable yeah uh for sure yeah well i want to talk about some of the myths that you talk about in your book mm. um i will say that when i was reading this section on the myth that fat people are emotionally damaged and cope by eating their feelings mm. that unlocked a memory that I had completely forgotten about where a friend years and years ago, she sincerely asked me if it was possible. I had some like childhood trauma that I was repressing as a means of like explaining my weight. And I was like, no, I don't. That's like, I had forgotten. She asked me that once. It is. That is such a tricky one. I was just talking to someone about that one this morning and it's tricky because Some folks really resonate with that framework that like emotional eating is like a thing for them. Um, And the tricky part is that like most humans, as people do with diets, right? People find a diet that they like and then they start telling everybody because we do this very silly, very basic rudimentary human brain thing, which is I found a thing that I like, so everyone must like it, right? Like it must work for everyone. And what that leads to when the framework is emotional eating is that you start to see fat people, like see a fat body and go, Uh, that person's fat because they've eaten too much and they've eaten too much because of their emotional trauma, which I can tell because they're fat. Right. Which is straightforwardly judging someone's character based on their appearance, right? Right. Like that is a a pretty gnarly thing, but it dresses itself up in our brains as being somehow more empathetic or somehow more understanding without us really clocking that that's kind of a pity-based framework. And it starts with the Mm. assumption that fatness is the result of a failing, right? Yeah. It starts with the assumption that fatness is a failing that needs to be explained and that thin people are owed an explanation for fat people's bodies, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is also one that has come up in a big way on TikTok lately, um, that there is quite a bit of TikTok activity these days about how this sort of belief that quote-unquote excess weight uh, is a result of like trauma that hasn't been dealt with. So this one is, despite feeling very 80s to me, emotional eating as a framework feels like the 1980s have come alive and here we are. Um, It's having a weird resurgence on TikTok and people are once again sort of entertaining this idea that like, ah, fat people aren't fat just because they're gross, which is sort of (laughs) historically our cultural explanation. Right. No, 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 no. It's because they've been through terrible things. So you shouldn't be repulsed by them. You should pity them. Right. Which is not exactly a pathway to seeing someone as a whole person with their own body and their own experiences and their own narrative of that body and those experiences, right? It's sort of jumping to a conclusion about someone without really knowing anything about them aside from the way that they look. It feels really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that pity is necessarily any better than you thinking I'm fat and gross. You know what I'd like? Yeah, totally. Neither one (laughs) regards me as a peer. Or like a human being worth knowing, right? Both of them are just like, you're grossed out. Here's an explanation for why you're grossed out, (laughs) right? Like, oh, that doesn't feel great. I would like to get away from the grossness conversation, you know? Uh, Right. Because it feels like it's trying to make it almost, I'm going to see if I can explain this in a way that Mm -hmm. is succinct. Yeah, fun times. Um, You know, it it feels like it's, it's an attempt to sort of lift the guilt of being grossed out by fat people because Mm -hmm. you're like oh no it's not because like I feel bad for them 
because yeah. like look at them they clear and I'm, that's where I sort of um yeah that's not good yeah, yeah totally <laughs> and I would say listen um it is worth knowing that there is a little tiny bit of research into this kind of thing which is when people believe that their own uh body size is manipulable when people mm. believe that weight loss is possible for anyone in any circumstance you start to see fat people as failed thin people right and yeah. emotional eating is an explanation for why fat people failed it's not the meanest one but right. it does start right. with the presumption that fat people have failed to look like thin people right yeah. Um, that every thin body is an accomplishment and every fat body is a failure. And now we have to explain and diagnose the failure that's happening here. Yeah. And that I will say again, as a fat person, doesn't feel great. Doesn't no. feel great to start out in someone else's eyes as like a fixer upper or like, <laughs> you know, like a challenge that you have to explain, you know, why this person even exists to begin with. Right. Yeah. Like I'm fixer upper. I'm not a house that needs like new you're not flipping me i'm not flipping me right? <laughs> please don't yeah <laughs> um so myth number 10 is accepting fat people quote-unquote glorifies obesity and you talk about lizzo and miley cyrus's mother daughter music video and and the mm. use of you know model angelina um duplicy and, and it made me wonder what your thoughts were on taylor swift's anti-hero music video and the subsequent Ooh. changes she made and then the reaction to it around her use of the word fat I think that, so listen, this is a thing that, oh, 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 I know, oh. I'm sorry. I had oh. to, I had oh. to. You're I like, know. next up, we're talking about the whale. Um, <laughs> uh, we're not going to go that far. Don't worry. No, totally. Don't worry. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, so Taylor Swift did a thing that a lot of thin people have done for many, many years, right? Which is sort of talk about her own body image struggles and the way that other people have treated her based on how they think she should look. Uh, and encapsulated all of that with the word fat, right? Mm -hmm. Without really reckoning with the fact that's not a feeling that thin people have. That's an experience that fat people have in fat bodies that actually exist. And that those folks might have a response to her using our bodies as a metaphor for feeling bad or feeling rejected or feeling criticized or whatever else. I think that... Uh, and I'm, I will say, I'm also glad that she took that out. You know, yeah. I'm glad that she took that out because listen, uh, there are a lot of fat people. There are a lot of people with eating disorders, none of whom need to see that. Right. Right. That, that is like extremely challenging to sort of see play out in that way. And I would like to be able to watch a music video <laughs> without, yeah. you know, right? Yeah, uh, feeling like hurled into this like really challenging, thorny sort of conversation, right? I think the hardest part about the Taylor Swift stuff was that what I heard from fat people were extremely reasonable, uh, grounded, um, thoughtful critiques yeah. and nuanced critiques of the video going hey i believe that you've experienced this thing that's got to be really hard and also please reconsider this part and the response from uh the internet which is like always the response from the internet is garbage right, <laughs> um, right. but also the response from quite a few media outlets was look at how sensitive these fat people are you can't do anything anymore Right. And I think that's the part, at least for me, different people, uh, different fat people will have different experiences of that discourse. For me, the discourse part was the hardest. Right. Right. Was just seeing how many people when asked very thoughtfully, very gingerly and in a very grounded way uh, by a you know handful of fat folks to reconsider this one thing that the response was, oh, Jesus, you guys can't hang with anything. You can't even handle one music video. Wah, wah, wah. Right? Like that it kicked up this huge reaction that felt completely mismatched from the source of the original critique, which felt, again, really thoughtful and grounded to me. And it was just a really sort of painful reminder of like, oh, right, fat people at this point, uh, 
are asking for extremely basic things and are being treated like those extremely basic things are like over the top impossible requests and total luxuries and a result of being so fragile living in this world rather than any sort of acknowledgement of like, oh, right, I bet it is pretty hard to be a fat person. Or wait a minute, let me remind myself of what these people were actually saying or what have you. It just felt like uh, a little match to some Tinder that was already there and already ready to go up, right? Yeah. Um, about being sort of exasperated with fat people asking for something. Right. That's how it landed for me. How did the, all of that land for you? It was a garbage couple of weeks on the internet. <laughs> yes, it was. It was not mm. fun. It was not fun. Ugh. Um, I, you know, I think that once she took it out, the music video, like it didn't alter the music video in any way. Yeah. You still got the message of what totally. she was trying to say. I think what was frustrating for me um, was that how many taylor swift fans um sort of tried to white knight for her and say all the fat people were being mean and bullying her and none of them at least that i saw and i don't know if taylor even herself came out and said anything but like none of them seemed to consider the fact that she may have been like you know what they're right and chose to yeah. make the change on her own um without like and she herself maybe didn't feel bullied but that mm. was a word that was attached to it that we were like all bullying her for asking her and that we were being dismissive of her own history of an eating disorder and that that was the frustrating part for me among all of it um just being like does she really need you to defend her maybe she came to her maybe she decided people were right and she doesn't need you to She's not necessarily a victim here. Well, and also, like, listen, if you want to find some people who've had some eating disorders, I welcome you to meet some fat people. Well, that too. Yeah. Right? Like, there is sort of this presumption that eating disorders are only for thin people, right? <laughs> that, yep. like, only yep. when someone looks sort of, quote unquote, like skin and bones, do you need to be concerned about their disordered eating? And uh, that comes from like a really concrete place, which is that most of the research that's been done on eating disorders has set a ceiling for the BMIs that will be considered as part of that research. If you have a quote unquote overweight or obese BMI, you will not be part of eating disorder research. There is one researcher right now who is looking at eating disorders in fat people, right? So we have set our definitions for eating disorders as a in a fundamentally exclusive way then our culture has sort of followed that perception and gone, right, 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 eating disorders are for very thin young white women, right, is sort of the cartoonishly narrow definition that we give it. Right. And then we have something like this, where we don't really connect the fact that, like, the people who are under the greatest pressure to lose colossal amounts of weight in unsafe ways are not people who are already thin. They are fat people. So if your concern here is giving people space to express, you know, their challenges with eating disorders then this is an even more salient conversation, right? This is even more important. Uh, but the way that we've conceptualized eating disorders is only people who look like Taylor Swift have eating right. disorders. And uh, those are sort of those chickens coming home to roost, right? With that discourse is like, when we think of this as something that only impacts one kind of person, even when they are one of the wealthiest and most famous people on the planet, we are still trained to see them as a victim of this thing rather than possibly even unintentionally being a perpetrator of it right yeah no that's it's true. really tricky yeah <laughs> no for sure yeah <laughs> um you mentioned tiktok um mm. just a minute ago and sort of some of the conversations happening there and from what i've seen um and we're talking about like breaking you know generational cycles so much of this discourse seems to vary so much mm. by generations um yeah. yes um do you think there is a way that we can kind of bring in all of the different generations the boomers the gen x millennials gen z all of them to the same table like do you think there's different approaches to the conversations we have with them so what what are your thoughts on that 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of essential for the conversation to take root, right? To have sort of an intergenerational understanding uh, of what's happening here, right? Um, and I think that that's made trickier by the kind of generational isolationism that we've got going yeah. on these days, right? And a little bit of generational tribalism, I think, makes that stuff a little bit more loaded and trickier than it needs to be, perhaps. But, like, absolutely an intergenerational approach here is sort of essential. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the paper fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Um, I think we're seeing some of that with the like almond moms content mm. that's starting to come out of TikTok, right? That like uh, there is a well-worn path for millennials to talk about their Weight Watchers moms. Yep. And Gen Z folks are now talking about almond moms and what it means to have a mom who says you're not hungry, you're just bored all the time, right? Or that kind of thing. Like those are all also things that cut you off from your hunger cues. Those are all also things that implicitly tell you that your body needs fixing and you probably shouldn't be eating rather than eating try considering not eating, right? right? Is sort of the solution there. Like all of these things are linked, but if we can't talk about them in the specific clothes that they put on for each generation, we are um, missing some major opportunities. That's for sure. That's interesting that you sort of, the Almond Mom and the Weight Watchers Mom and sort of, yeah, there's every generation has has their mom. And it's- Yeah, just- totally. Same, same. <laughs> same thing, just- different clothes you know uh yeah I will say um some of I one of the things I struggle with as a uh fat person is mm. that because I did diet for so long um food is still sort of I'm in a good spot but there are like holdovers food from my dieting days that I still mm. really enjoy and like those stupid snack well devil's food cake cookies. <laughs> this is you're describing my entire relationship with cottage cheese. Yes, and Diet cottage Coke. cheese. Yes. I mean, I I same. I can't drink regular like I have to drink diet soft drinks, not because of the calories, but because I'm so used to that taste that when I yeah. try to drink a regular one, it's I can't do it. But it's like I don't know how to that's something I can't unbreak from and I don't maybe I don't need to but I'm just very cognizant of the fact that I'm like when I'm in the grocery store as a fat person buying the diet cookies I'm like what does this look like but also why do I care so much but it's a constant struggle it's a little bit of a like um for me anyway as someone who started dieting young 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 like grade school middle school Uh uh-huh uh for me, I now am in this weird position where some of those diet foods are also my comfort foods. Yeah. And it feels really politically fraught. Yes. <laughs> to have that be the case. But also I'm like, I don't know, man, your comfort foods are your comfort foods. You get to have right. that, you know, yeah. like it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so I'm just sort of like deciding to look the other way on that one for myself and just get another Fair. tub of cottage cheese. And feel fine. <laughs> you know what I mean like I just genuinely like it I just genuinely like it that's where we are now I I think that's true yeah like as it is sort of a comfort those comfort foods that they are what they are and they just happen to be food that the marketers have decided to pitch as diet food but that doesn't necessarily mean that's why I'm eating it it's I'm eating it because I they taste good (laughs) right the fact that like rice cakes came to me because they were like one Weight Watchers point Yes. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be the reason that I still like them. I like a crunchy thing. I like right. a super duper crunchy thing. There you go. Fine. Fine by me. Look, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. 
I mean, I sort of feel like, look, there are lots and lots of ways to put more and new and different pressures on ourselves. Yeah. I would say that those pressures that we put on ourselves lead to a lot more harm than good when it comes to the foods that we're eating and the ways that we look. Yeah. It just feels like uh, everybody gets a break, (laughs) you know? Fair enough. (laughs) Just enjoy your cottage cheese. Have a great Diet Coke, you know? Eat up on Snackwell's cookies. Live your Uh, life. It's fine. You know? Yeah. And I think, listen, I also think for myself, when I think about that stuff, that is also an extension of a dieting mindset, which is that I Mm. need to be monitoring and revising the foods that I eat based on some external perception of what that looks like. And I'm genuinely working overtime to let that go. You know? And like, sometimes that means you want a hamburger, which feels really like rad and anti-diet. And then sometimes that means you want a Diet Coke, you know? Yes. And those are still both things that you want. And those are still both totally fine things to eat. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Now, I mentioned in my intro that you um, previously wrote, you still do, your social handles are your fat friend, but Mm. you wrote anonymously. And that's how I was first introduced to your work. Um, Mm. I was curious, what made you finally want to write under your own name and and be open about who you are um well so I started writing anonymously for a couple of reasons one is I had uh started a new job uh shortly before I started writing and was just hyper aware that there were like a bunch of specific people that I worked with who if they knew that my politics were so decidedly like pro-fat like Mm -hmm. so in favor of fat people that those are people who would start to look at me differently and not necessarily be willing to work with me on sort of political strategy projects, which is what we were working on. Um, so that was part of it. And the other part was, you know, as witnessed, frankly, by the Taylor Swift backlash, as witnessed by the whale backlash, yeah. as witnessed by all kinds of stuff, right? Anytime Lizzo does anything, uh, anti-fatness is alive and well, and people have a strong and sometimes violent reaction to questioning that anti-fatness. So when I started to write, almost immediately I started to get threats from people. Mm -hmm. And it felt like the safe thing to do was to stay anonymous. Um, After a while, it became clear to me that that was sort of an idea of safety that wasn't really real. There was um, someone who read my work and followed my Twitter and would email me every time I mentioned a location and would say, okay, this library, and then would include the phrase, we will find you every time he sent me a location, right? Oh my God. So like, right, creep city. And I think I realized around that point that I was like, oh, I'm sort of kidding myself if I think anonymity is going to keep me safe. It didn't really uh, and doesn't really. And uh, I was uh, working on a book and was going to release that book into the world. And I'll tell you what is challenging. And that's doing a book tour (laughs) and attempting to have no one know your name or face. That's really challenging, right? Um, So at a certain point, it just became more cumbersome. Mm -hmm. kind of to carry around anonymity and to try and enforce it um, than to just let it down. And when I did sort of set down anonymity as this sort of burden to carry around, I mean, a bunch of stuff happened that you would predict would happen, right? A bunch of people stopped responding to my writing and started responding to my double chin or stopped responding to what I was saying and started talking about how I looked, right? Like it really was sort of like clockwork, Um, and you know, the intensity of reactions to my work didn't die down. People didn't stop making threats. People didn't stop any of that stuff. It was just the same stuff. So, I mean, I think giving up on anonymity was just, you know, has been in some ways really different and a lot of ways, exactly the same. And it's not appreciably different. I will say this than like kind of any fat person on the internet 
talking about being a fat person, right? People just swoop in from out of nowhere and say these incredibly judgmental, personal, hurtful, sometimes scary things to fat people just for talking about being fat without also talking about losing weight, right? Um, So yeah, I would say anonymity was like, it felt like a big leap at the time. And now I'm like, oh no, everything's pretty similar. (laughs) You know, pretty similar. Uh, Well, I mean, at least you had experience dealing with it. So. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about Maintenance Phase, a podcast you co-host with Michael Hobbs, where you debunk wellness and weight loss trends. How did that come about? Uh, well, uh, Mike reached out to me some years ago when he was working on a big piece for Huffington yes. Post, and I did not get back to him at all. <laughs> I had just started writing and I was scared out of my mind at the thought of talking to a reporter. Mm. So I just like never responded to him. And then a couple years later, I tweeted something about going to Seattle and I got my requisite like Seattle will find you email from that guy. Uh, And uh, Mike got in touch and was like, hey, you're going to be in Seattle. Do you want to have lunch? And we had lunch and had a great time and totally hit it off. And a few months after that, the pandemic started. And right. He called, like, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, <laughs> okay, that sounds fun. Listen, I am at home all the time. I would love to talk to somebody interesting about something into a microphone. Sounds great. Um, so we recorded, I think it was eight sort of test episodes to put out into the world and see if anybody cared. And a lot of people listened really fast in a way yeah. that I did not anticipate um and that was uh about two years ago Mm -hmm. two years ago yeah two years ago almost exactly uh and we've just been chugging along ever since talking about garbage weight loss trends (laughs) and you know wellness companies and gwyneth paltrow and amanda Uh, chantal bacon and all of it yeah 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 Yeah. it's i i I enjoy the the banter between the two of you um mm. and the the different topics that you pick like I'm assuming you have a long maybe maybe you make it up as you go along but I also assume that there's like a list of topics that you will plan to eventually get to oh yeah we have a running google doc with possible okay. topics and it's currently in the like high 100s low 200s of like (laughs) stuff we gotta get to at some point uh yeah so we've we will not run out of uh topics to discuss anytime soon well that's great for all of us who enjoy listening to it oh thank you i'll tell you this i'm very excited i just started work on an episode today here's the scoop um (laughs) just started uh work on an episode today about um Elizabeth Taylor wrote a diet book called Elizabeth Takes Off. (laughs) And it's all things that are like, anyway, if you want to lose weight, just stop eating. Then I got my third divorce. And you're like, okay, we are in the thick of the Elizabeth Taylor of it all. Like a bunch of the tips are things like, you know, just take up smoking. You'll stop eating if you start smoking. Like that kind of stuff where you're like, wow, wow, wow. Okay, we're in the thick of it now. This yeah. is the weight loss at any cost yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's going to be a good one. I think it's going to be a pretty gnarly one, but a good one. <laughs> you know? I do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I had Yvette Dion on to talk about oh. her new book, Weightless. And at the end of our conversation, I asked her for some book recommendations for folks who may be interested in similar titles. You have a list of titles at the beginning of um, You Just Need to Lose Weight, and there's a lot of crossover. So I'm not going to ask you to yeah, repeat yeah. them. Plus, people can go read your book and get the full list. But I do want to know if you were to suggest one title other than your books as a good starting point for someone who is entirely new to this and wants more information, what would you recommend? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Mm, There are like a few that really jump out. (laughs) Um, 
But I would say the big one for a major paradigm shift for folks is Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. Yeah. Um, For understanding the like deep, deep, deep roots of, you know, what we call diet culture is usually mostly just anti-fatness. And what we think of as anti-fatness has extraordinarily deep roots in anti-blackness, right? Right. Um, that one feels incredibly, incredibly helpful and meaningful to me. I mean, listen, one of the books that is missing from that list of titles in the beginning, because I hadn't read it and it wasn't out yet, is Yvette's book, which is phenomenal. It's so good. It's unbelievable how good that book is. It's really astonishing. And then the other one that I would add to the list is um, The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia yeah. Renee Taylor. Like, it's just great. It's just yeah. fantastic. Yes. And you can get them from your library. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So our conversation here is going to be the first episode we released in 2023, right after the new year. I know it it was all planned. It was all planned. Um, And I know that I personally wasted many years of my life setting resolutions around weight loss. I don't do that anymore. What advice would you have for listeners who are still in that place, but are also on the cusp of wanting to get off the carousel and don't know how? Boy, so that's a great one. Uh, I would say a couple of things. One, if you're generally in dieting mode, I would do a little taking stock of the people that you know who have dieted, not just the people who are quote unquote success stories, right? Mm. Because we've all got a person or two in our lives who have gone through major weight loss, right? Sure. Yep. Um, But like, take a little more global stock of the people that you know who have been on diets or are on diets or are doing a cleanse or a detox or are making a lifestyle change, whatever they call it. Think about how many of those people end up losing weight, like in the long term. Mm -hmm. And think about how many of those people end up just being on diets all the time. That's step one, I would say, right? For me, those numbers do not pan out great. Yeah. (laughs) Like there are a lot more people that I know who have been on diets or continue to diet than there are people who are like losing significant amounts of weight. So that's thing one that I would say. Thing two that I would say, if there is a particular diet that is especially enticing to you, do a little looking around. Go mm. to Cochrane.org, which is the place, the sort of centralized source for research reviews on different diets. And if you feel enticed by a low-carb diet, you can go there and read, you know, meta-analyses of the performance of low-carb and low-fat diets. They perform about the same, which is you lose a little bit of weight in the first three to six months, and then they fully stop working by the 12-month mark, right? Um I think there's a lot of stuff to sort of glean there from like actually do some like science research into the diet, not just talking to other people who've been on it, not reading branded diet books, but like actually dig in on some research and look at what the actual success rates are and adjust your expectations accordingly, right? Um, And thing three that I would say, as someone uh, who has been away from New Year's resolutions for a long time, mm-hmm. I think the sort of last straw for me was realizing that I was spending all of this time and energy thinking about what I wanted to look like Mm. and not thinking about the person I want to be. So I am a, a person who still makes New Year's resolutions, but they are things about spending time with my family. Yeah. There are things about showing up for communities that I'm not a part of. There are things about how I show up for the people that I know and love and how I show up for the people I don't yet know and love, right? Like, this is such good energy, the energy of like, I want to figure out something to work on in myself, I think is like a good impulse. It is absolutely bananas that over time that has gotten reduced down to just how you look. And from there has gotten reduced down to just how much you weigh. Yeah. I think it was really helpful for me to reconfigure that as, look, you've got a choice to make here and you're picking the most superficial thing (laughs) rather than 
the thing that would strengthen your relationships and make you into more of the person you want to be and have more of the effect you want to have in the world. Like, I would just invite folks to think more globally about like, what are the pressure points in your life? Is it the size on your pants? <laughs> right? Is right. it the number yeah. on the scale? Or is it like a relationship that needs tending to, or are you unhappy in your job and need to think about going somewhere else or what have you, right? Like I just, uh, for me, being able to think about that stuff more globally and then put dieting in that context, dieting mm -hmm. looked really puny and silly yeah. <laughs> compared to yeah. the other things there are to work on in this world. Yeah. Uh, how about for you? What was your um, sort of like off ramp? For all of this stuff what helped you sort of like really uh get off the train um i uh broke my ankle and mm. um i was then you know i was at the house um and during the day um i my husband would go to work and i'd be at home and i had this moment where i realized i was only eating like one meal a day because that's about all I could manage to get Oof. to the kitchen. And I made some joke to a friend about the broken angle diet. And I was like, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. 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 I, I, I think that was like, and it was like, I was around shortly after that, um, where I was just like, that. that's not really a, a good response to the fact that I'm only eating really once a day because it's too much work to get to the kitchen to get food to you know like all of that and that's why I was only eating once a day and I'm like that's just that's not just like that's not a healthy attitude so that's sort of what kicked off um just not wanting and then like six months later was new year's I'm like I don't I cannot do another yeah diet resolution um because it never works out in the end because of course it doesn't. And so I think in terms of like what people can do, I think one of the biggest things for me that also helped was just like scrubbing my social media of any accounts that um, posted about weight loss or dieting or comparison and before and after and really filling my feet up with fat bodies and even not even just like fat bodies, but just average normal looking bodies that aren't focused on losing weight and yeah. once you you see more of that you start to get more comfortable with it in yourself um absolutely that was one of the biggest things yeah that's a huge one i would say not only fat bodies but particularly people who are fatter than me people who are fatter yes. than you you know what i mean yes, like I whoever you are whatever your size following people who are fatter than you and uh just like getting more used to seeing you know the bodies that exist out in the world it's an interesting thing you mentioned like average size bodies which is a phrase that folks use quite a bit the average is plus size yeah but because of our sort of media landscape social media landscape and how we tend to think about the people in the world, we're used to regarding fat people as A, a minority, and B, a problem to be solved, yeah. and not C, most people, <laughs> right? right? Like, So I think it's like a really good project to sort of adjust your social media feed that way to make it look more like the rest of the world, yeah. right? Um, yeah, that feels like a really important one. The other one that I would flag is that um, in most... Uh, social media uh, apps on like Facebook, on Instagram, on a number of uh, platforms, you can actually go in and adjust and block certain categories of ads. Yes. On Instagram, the name of the category is, I believe, body weight control methods. You can just block that and not have to see it for the entire month of January or ever. Right? Like you also don't need to have those ads in your feed, right? If you're sort of thinking you could use a break from that kind of stuff, that's another way to, you know, get yourself right with dieting. <laughs> like once you get away from those ads, when you start to see them, they are so bizarre and alienating. They, yes. Yeah. I've got one the other day for like a thing that's supposed to be like a breathalyzer that tells you if you're burning more carbs or fat. And I was like, First of all, this seems like <laughs> nonsense witchcraft. And second of all, genuinely hundreds of dollars to buy this thing 
that may or may not change anything about your body, but will definitely make you feel more anxious all the time yeah. about the food that you're eating, right? Like, cut yourself a break from that stuff, you know? Give yourself a little month off. You can take a New Year's off. It's fine. We're good. Well, yeah, and I think you sort of, when you're talking about setting resolutions and this idea of people talk about all the things they can't do until they lose weight or they think they can't do them until they lose weight. But like, what if you did make that one of your resolutions or goals? Yeah, what totally. if you just did that? Like, what would that just ask yourself, just take a moment and think about that and do that instead of just skip the, the, the step where you think you have to lose weight in order to do X, Y, Z and just do that instead. For sure. For sure. I will say there's a tool that I use around the new year every year um, called the year compass. Is this a thing you've ever come across? A friend of mine introduced me to it a few years ago. It's basically just like a downloadable worksheet from the internet (laughs) that guides you through reflecting on the last year and thinking about what you want the next year to be. And there is a page that has like 10 different little boxes where you are doing a little thinking in each one of those boxes about what was this year about in regards to you know, my friendships? What was it about in regards to my family? What was it about in regards to my work? What was it about in regards to my community? What was it about Mm. in regards to my finances? Once I started thinking about all of those other little boxes of things that I could be doing and could be working on and was instead spending all of my time and energy trying to get smaller, uh, again, it started to feel really puny and it started to feel like exactly what you're talking about which is like well why don't I just go do those things yeah right like why don't I just go do those things no one's stopping me and if they are trying to stop me then they are a jerk right <laughs> like if somebody else thinks you shouldn't go to the beach or shouldn't start you know take up swimming just because you're yeah. a fat person that person is straightforwardly a jerk and it's yeah. okay to be like well, I don't care what that person thinks right yes indeed <laughs> Well, I have enjoyed talking to you so much. I just have one question left, Mm. which is what would you like readers to take away from reading? You just need to lose weight and 19 other myths about fat people. Uh, I think there's sort of an explicit message and an implicit message, right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, the explicit message is really a lot of the things that we say most frequently about fat people are factually incorrect. (laughs) totally ungrounded in their history or straight up just designed to make fat people um stigmatized right yeah they're just designed to isolate fat people to make us feel bad and to make thin people feel better for not being fat and afraid of what happens if they do become fat right that's the explicit one the implicit one i think is um i'm so happy to get more sort of research out into folks' hands, more history out into folks' hands. And my hope is that when folks get more of that grounding in that research and history around the effects of anti-fatness, how, again, sort of pernicious and pervasive it can be, that they then go about doing what they already know how to do, which is tell your parents to leave your fat sibling alone and stop haranguing them about being on a diet, right? Mm -hmm. That people... Take it to their HR department and go, I don't think we should have weight loss competitions in our workplace anymore, right? My hope is that regardless of folks sort of response to the information in the book, that it feels like good grounding to them to then go do the next step they kind of already know they need to do, right? I think we're in this sort of interesting place where more and more folks are clocking diet culture sort of for what it is more and more folks are hearing from fat people um, about what the world is like for us and are sort of aware of this gap between how they think of themselves and their politics and how they're showing up for fat folks and my hope is that this starts to bridge that gap and get people feeling grounded enough to take the actions that match their values and actually shut down anti-fatness and, you know, show up for fat people. That's, that's my biggest hope. I haven't read the book. I think, I think you're solid on that. I think you're good to go. (laughs) All right. I'll take that. Thanks buddy. Appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Aubrey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat with me. 
Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. This was a treat. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com see you soon